The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, first I would like to thank Gil for his introduction and for inviting me to come here to speak tonight. I consider myself largely just to be a link in a chain of great translators and proponents of the Buddha Dhamma through the ages, and I build very largely upon the work of some of my predecessors, earlier Western Buddhist monks in Sri Lanka, particularly Venerable Nyanataloka, who is the first monk from continental Europe in Sri Lanka, my personal teacher, Venerable Nyanaponika, who was the student of Venerable Nyanatiloka, a German-Jewish monk who lived in Sri Lanka from 1936 until his death in 1994. And then on the work of Venerable Nyanamoli, an English monk who lived in Sri Lanka from 1949 until 1960. Okay, I'd like to speak briefly about some of the factors that assist the practice of meditation. Often when Westerners, particularly Americans, come to Buddhism, they think Buddhism is just meditation. And we come to an identification, what does it mean to be a Buddhist? It means that one sits to meditate. But actually, meditation is a particular discipline of training the mind, which is built upon a base of supporting conditions. And in order for the practice to develop successfully and to bear its proper results, it has to be built up with the support of these conditions and continually nourished by these conditions. It strikes me as somewhat interesting that the process by which we Westerners come to Buddhism is almost the exact opposite of the process by which Asian Buddhists relate to Buddhism. Normally, Asian Buddhists begin with faith and devotion towards the Buddha and the Dhamma. On the basis of this, they build up a life of generosity and moral discipline. And then when they reach a point where they feel some degree of spiritual maturity, then they will take up the practice of meditation, aiming at realization or insight. For Westerners, myself included, we generally come to Buddhism first searching for some method to train the mind, because we often have agitated minds, restless minds, worried, disturbed minds. And so we want to find some way to get peace of mind. And so we sit down, starting to meditate, sometimes practicing very diligently. And what we find is that the mind is extremely difficult to control, difficult to tame. Then one, we inquire, why is this the case? What is missing? And one thing that we find is missing is that we don't have a proper understanding of the Dhamma. 
And so then we move into the intellectual investigation of the Dhamma. And so sometimes we might be studying Buddhist texts, practicing meditation. Still, the mind doesn't settle down and become quiet. We might increase our knowledge. Sometimes that knowledge will cause our pride to swell up. We might engage in (laughs) debates with others who have been studying Buddhist texts. Sometimes these debates get out of control and they become bitter, acrimonious. (laughs) And instead of producing friendly and harmonious relationships, they lead to bitter, angry, contentious relationships. Even if people face-to-face speak politely to one another, if you look at some of these Buddhist discussion groups <laughs> on the Internet, you can see that there's almost no restraint in the language that people will use to criticize their opponents. <laughs> and so, simply the practice of meditation and the practice of meditation conjoined with intellectual knowledge Neither of them is sufficient. Then one starts to inquire, what more does one need? Then one comes to the other factors. Proper behavior, which is what we call sila, morally disciplined behavior. Generosity. And a quality called sadha, which is often translated as faith. And so what I want to touch on briefly are some of these basic qualities that we need to accompany the practice of meditation and that we have to add to our spiritual life in order to provide a satisfactory basis for growth in the Dhamma, development in the Dhamma. And so I will begin with what the Buddha emphasizes as the first of the five spiritual faculties. This is that word sadha, which I prefer to translate as faith. I know faith, the word faith, often it provokes some resistance from Americans who are coming from a dogmatic religious background. But faith in Buddhism doesn't mean a blind submission to authority. But it means a trust, a willingness to place trust in the Buddha as one's spiritual guide, as one's teacher and one's spiritual guide. And in order to generate this faith, we have to ask ourselves, What is our motivation in practicing the Dhamma, in taking up this path of practice of the Dhamma? And I like to see the goals of the Dhamma as perhaps we can subsume them under three headings. Goodness, understanding, and liberation or freedom. The Buddha is the one who, through his own wisdom, through his enlightenment, has discovered 
the consummation of these three qualities, goodness, understanding of truth, and freedom. The ultimate goal to which the Buddha's teaching points is liberation, which means freedom from suffering. This is, the Buddha says that this is the one taste that pervades the entire teaching from beginning to end. Just as in the great ocean there is but one taste, the taste of salt, so the Buddha says in my Dhamma, there is this one taste, the taste of freedom, the taste of liberation. And then liberation comes about as the consummation of the development of goodness and knowledge or understanding. And so the Buddha is one who has himself reached the fullest development, the pinnacle in the development of goodness, understanding, and liberation, and who understands the laws of the spiritual life that lead us to our own experience of this consummation of goodness, understanding, and liberation. What makes the Buddha a perfectly enlightened one is the fact that he has comprehended these laws in their fullness, in their completeness. He knows what are the particular courses of conduct that lead to degeneration. What are the states of mind that create obstructions to our own spiritual development and that drive us to courses of conduct that are harmful to ourselves, harmful to others. He knows the ways of conduct that bring benefit to ourselves, benefit to others. And he knows all of the different stages of progress, beginning from the level of an ordinary person, moving to higher and deeper levels, up to the stage of final liberation. And so initially, we don't come to the Buddha Dhamma with the attitude that we have to blindly believe everything that the Buddha teaches. It's an experiential teaching, an experimental teaching, so that we have to work our own way through the Dhamma, through our own practice, our own experience, taking that which is beneficial to ourselves and finding our own way of integrating these principles into our own lives and practice. But still, we always look for ultimate guidance to the Buddha as the one who has understood all of these principles, all of these laws. Placing faith in the Buddha and his teaching has a function of clarifying the mind. It's sometimes said that the mind without faith, the mind troubled by doubts, questions, uncertainties, is like a puddle of muddy water. And there's said to be a gem This is an Indian mythology, a kind of gem that when one puts this gem into muddy water, it causes all of the mud to settle down to the bottom 
of the pond. And so faith is compared to this water-clearing gem. When one deposits that faith in the mind, when one is able to arouse that trust, it causes so many layers of mental obscurity, mental unclarity, unrest, agitation, to settle down, and the mind becomes clear, calm, and peaceful. Okay, so in this way, faith is an important spiritual faculty, the first spiritual faculty. It turns into a bala, which means a power. The texts speak of sadha bala, the power of faith. When one has this trust in the Buddha and his teaching, when one is ready to suspend one's uncertainties with trust, then that mind of faith accumulates strength and power that propels one through the practice, sustains one through many difficulties, many problems might arise, but one remains persistent in one's intention to pursue the goal. Okay, so in this way, faith becomes a powerful supporting condition for the practice. The second supporting condition is what we call sila, or sila actually means behavior, but it means specifically behavior which is regulated by ethical principles. We can call it moral behavior. Okay, the Buddha teaches that our actions are locked into a network of subtle causal laws that are not immediately visible to us. We can't test them the way we can test the laws of physics or chemistry. We can't test them with our with our physical senses. These are laws that have to be perceived through a kind of inner perception that arises out of the higher development of the mind. According to these ethical laws, these laws of the moral life, behavior, actions, which run counter to these basic moral laws, bring about harmful consequences to us, not only in this present life itself, but they deposit seeds within the mind that carry on from life to life and cause suffering in future lives. On the other hand, conduct which accords with this law of moral causation brings benefit to ourselves, benefit to others, in this life and in future lives. So when we act in accordance with these laws, then we are behaving in accordance with the underlying law of the whole universe. We are bringing our behavior into harmony with the law of the universe. An action of this type generates an inner spiritual power which supports the mind, again it clarifies the mind, and it 
establishes the conditions that help to bring to fulfillment and fruition the practice of mental development or meditation. So what are these laws or principles of the moral life? The Buddha has expressed them in the form of certain sets of precepts. And so we have, as the most basic precepts, the set of five precepts, which the Buddha has taught universally to all of his followers, particularly for the lay community. These five precepts are to abstain from killing or causing harm and damage to living beings, to abstain from stealing, misappropriating the belongings of others, to abstain from sexual misconduct, abusing others, exploit, interfering with the relationships of others, particularly in the form of adultery or seduction, abstaining from false speech. Those are four basic ethical principles. And then the fifth is not directly an ethical principle. This is to abstain from the use of intoxicants. This is not directly an ethical principle, but when people use intoxicants, then they lose their sense of shame, self-respect, self-control, and then they're inclined to break the basic principles of the moral life. Okay, so these are five principles. We call them principles of varita, which means principles of restraint. And so the minimal ethical observance is to refrain from these actions which inflict harm and suffering on others. But that is not the fullness of the moral life. The fulfillment of the moral life also requires a corresponding component, which we call charita, the development of positive virtues, which are the counterparts to these five principles of restraint. So rather than killing and harming others, one develops loving kindness and compassion towards all living beings. The quality of heart that makes one sympathize with others, feel their pain as one's own, and thereby one generates this mind of compassion towards them. Rather than misappropriating the belongings of others, one lives an honest life, earning one's living by a right mode of livelihood, receiving only what properly belongs to one, never misappropriating the belongings of others. So honesty becomes a positive virtue. Instead of becoming sexually promiscuous, one if one can, as a, especially as a monastic, observe celibacy. If not, one should remain faithful to one's partner, not just trying to enjoy pleasures with other people. And so we could call this maybe sexually responsible behavior. And then the fourth, rather than lie, one speaks the truth. Always being straightforward, candid, and reliable in one's speech so that others place trust in what one says. 
and then refraining from intoxicants, one maintains a clear and sober mind. And so we have these five positive virtues, compassion, honesty, called this sensual restraint or fidelity, truthfulness, and sobriety. So these two get together the factors of restraint, that's conduct in accordance with the precepts, and the development of the corresponding virtues together make up sila, virtuous conduct, upright conduct. Okay, so that is the second basic principle supporting the practice of meditation. First, faith, trust or confidence in the Buddha. Second, moral conduct. The third is generosity, giving. In traditional Buddhist countries, giving is usually explained as, (laughs) I always feel a little bit shy about saying this, but making offerings to support the monastic order. That is because, (laughs) please don't take that in any way. (laughs) But in a traditional Buddhist culture, monks and nuns, they don't work at jobs to earn their own living, and so they depend for their subsistence on the support of the laity. And so laity regularly will build monasteries for the monastics, provide their food every day, Um, they give offer the robes, they'll look after the medical care, give them other things they need, buying books, little day-to-day requisites that they have to use. And then the monastics also practice giving by teaching the Dhamma. This is called Dhammadana, the gift of the Dhamma. In our own day, this is, I feel that we have to give a wider, more comprehensive explanation. We have to develop a wider, more comprehensive understanding of giving. And to understand giving, not merely just making offerings to support the Sangha, but we have to develop our hearts to feel the suffering of other human beings within this world in which we live. We live in a world in which with six billion people, two billion people are living below the poverty level. One billion people, almost one billion people, are living almost on the edge of starvation every day. And perhaps four billion of the six billion people are living in difficult circumstances. And so there are many causes, many organizations which are providing aid to the poor and unfortunate. We should find one, at least one worthy cause that resonates with us and we should make it a point to provide some assistance to the best of our ability to help those who are less fortunate. And it might seem that when we're giving material aid, we're losing something. But what one finds as one gives more and more that it leads to an opening up and expansion of the heart, a sense of growing inner freedom and a bubbling joy of a bubbling of joy and happiness starts running through the heart because one feels 
instead of being locked into the sense of one's ego identity, this is me, this is mine, one is now expanding one's sense of identity to feel the suffering of others as one's own. And in helping others, one has a sense that one is contributing to the welfare of the world. And then that will give a great flourishing of joy within the mind. And that flourishing of joy will clear up so much clinging and grasping and worry and distress and lighten the mind. Making the mind a much fitter, more pliable instrument for the development of samadhi and panya, concentration and wisdom. Okay, so this is generosity. And then the fourth quality to be developed as a support for the practice of meditation is wisdom itself, panya. Normally, we say sila samadhi panya, moral behavior, concentration, wisdom. So we think that wisdom develops out of concentration. This is true at the meditative level, so that the direct beam of insight that understands things directly, perceptibly, experientially, depends on a base of concentration. But to mature the development of the mind within the Dhamma, it's important to clarify our understanding. And that is the basic step that we take in developing wisdom. <clears throat> and so, though we speak about sila, samadhi, panya, but the process of developing the higher wisdom is actually a concurrent process of developing the mind through systematic practice of meditation and also deepening our understanding of the Dhamma through the study of the Buddha's teaching and reflection on the teaching. And so to lay the seed for the growth of wisdom, one has to turn to the study of the Buddha's teachings. And we find in the suttas, the Buddha's discourses, lays down what seems to be almost a complete course of education in the development of wisdom through five stages. <laughs> what I like about these lists is that it makes things easy to explain. <laughs> For adult people, people like myself who are getting old, it makes it easier. <laughs> okay. So the Buddhist texts speak about how one develops wisdom. One begins by listening. Because in the Buddha's day, no books. One doesn't go to a library, a bookshop, or order books from Amazon.com. But one has to go to a teacher who's giving expositions, discourses on the Dhamma, and one has to listen. And so the first step in learning is called sutta, which comes not sutta in the sense of sutra, discourse, it's S-U-T-A, which means 
hearing, listening. When one listens, then one has to retain in mind. That's the second step. Because if one just listens and things go in one ear, out the other ear, then one goes home and thinks, now I'm going to develop wisdom. What did he say? <laughs> um, he had a pleasant smile. Yeah, that I remember. His voice was a little croaky. Yeah, that I remember. <laughs> but I don't remember what he said. <laughs> so it has to train the memory. Especially in the, in the Buddha's day. Now, for those of us who are lazy, it becomes very easy. We just, if we don't remember, we just look in the books. Or we go to, with our computer, we go to websites and look on the website. But in the Buddha's day, this is how they could develop minds that could remember volumes and volumes of, of texts just through training the memory. So one remembers. That's the second step. By, in order to preserve what one has heard in the memory, one recites. So one undertakes recitation. Then the fourth step is important. This is examining the meaning. So when we study a text, now we don't have to listen so much, we don't have to memorize, we don't have to recite, but when first we study, then we have to examine the meaning. Don't just think, I'm going to read so many Dhamma books, and you take the Majjhima Nikaya, you flip through it, and finish it in a couple of weeks, then thought, okay, I've read the Majjhima Nikaya, let's see, any interesting novels are being published, <laughs> or a history of the Civil War. So we don't take Dhamma books as being the kind of book that one just flips through, but one has to read, study very carefully, reflect on the meaning. And to help one understand meanings, what's useful if you're studying, very important, is to take notes. And you could even take the notes, read through several times the sutta. The way I, when I first studied, what I did was to read through a whole Nikaya, taking notes as I read, till I read through the four Nikayas, the main books of the Kudaka Nikaya, then what I did was to take the main categories and topics of the Buddha's teaching. Say, four noble truths in general, then the truth of suffering, then themes like impermanence, non-self, dependent origination, and think practices like Sila, morality, the jhanas, other statements on samadhi, wise attention, yoniso manasikara, and so on. Make these headings, then go through the text again and note the most important passages that come under these headings. In this way, one is building up a kind of comprehensive, analytical, systematic understanding of the teaching. Okay, and so in this way, by building up the systematic picture, comprehensive systematic picture of the teaching, then one is laying the foundation for examining the meaning. Then, based upon examination of the meaning, then one develops the meditative insight and penetrates 
the true meaning, the experiential meaning, directly, through direct perception. And so this is the cultivation of wisdom. And thus we have these four supporting conditions for the practice of meditation. Faith, or trust, whatever term one prefers. Ethical discipline, or morality. Generosity, and then the step-by-step development of wisdom. And so I think if you complement your meditative practice with these four qualities, you'll see that it becomes enriched, more fulfilling, and will bring greater happiness and hopefully fruition of the practice. Okay, maybe at this point I'll just ask if anybody has any questions. We have maybe a few minutes left. Any questions relating to the talk? Thank you. Um, My question is about uh, something that you said early in your talk. When you said, when you go to the websites or or even the monks themselves disagree and are disrespectful and so on. And Buddhism is really ethical. And I was sort of relieved to hear you say that, to hear you say, well, even monks argue and fight and are disrespectful. Because I find this so difficult. And lately, and I I like this very much, Hmm. but I, I have a lot of doubt because am I ever going to be ethical all the time (laughs) or enough so I don't, you know, how do you, you just keep faith and you just keep working on things, I guess. How do you, how do you get over uh, not arguing and being ethical all the time (laughs) or forgiving yourself when you're not, (laughs) even though you're trying? Sorry, (laughs) that's a tough one. We also have our human weaknesses. (laughs) And so sometimes we form particular opinions and then we have disagreements. But we know that even though we might have disagreements, we have to be humble about our opinions. And when I first, maybe I'll give you a, a useful piece of advice that I had at the very beginning. When I first became interested in Buddhism, this was when I was in graduate school, I became friends with a Vietnamese Buddhist monk who was studying in the same university. And so I took him as my first Buddhist teacher. Though he had been a monk for, since he was a little boy, 20 years, I was just becoming interested in Buddhism, and was reading some books. And where, what I got from the books I was reading and my own reflection upon them was different from what he said. I was always certain I was right, he was wrong. <laughs> and so I would constantly be arguing <laughs> with him on the basis of my thimbleful of knowledge. <laughs> After all, like, I'm an American, right? <laughs> He's 
an Asian who's come here, he's just stumbling through English. <laughs> so I must have it better. So after a few occasions of trying to put me in my place, he gave me a very useful piece of advice. He said, when you disagree with somebody, instead of become, becoming so self-righteous and so argumentative, what you do is think to yourself, I might be right or I might be wrong. That's not the important thing. The important thing is to find out what is true, what is valid. So let me give up my attachment to my own view, to the thought, I have to be right. I have to show the other person to be wrong. Let's just put down that idea and just open up and investigate and inquire. And in this way, one can at least make some progress towards arriving at an objective view of what is true. That helps to put away that quarrelsome mind. <laughs> Bhante, is kindness more important than wisdom? <laughs> Given that kindness is available for all of us immediately, and for some of us, yeah. wisdom may take a lot of years of practice and cultivation. One can say one... On a human level, I say kindness is more important than wisdom. From the standpoint of liberation, let's say wisdom is the quality that that directly brings liberation. But kindness is the most important as the foundation for one's spiritual development. So if one doesn't have a kind mind, one can't even think about developing wisdom. And so better to be kind and a little bit dull than to have. <laughs> if you have, if you think you have wisdom without kindness, what I think you have is just shrewdness and cunningness, not real wisdom. Uh, thank you for sharing, first of all. So my question is, how to find the compass again? And I'll elaborate more. Um, it's like how to dissolve attachment. Yeah but remain with the purpose. Let me give you some background. When I was in my completely delusional state, I'm still somewhat, but I was completely delusional. I thought I know everything, and I had such a strong belief, and, and it gave me so much drive and, and motivation and sense of purpose. It was wrong concept with attachment to concept, to idea. Yeah. Then as you grow, the idea change, concept change, yeah. and you believe in that, and you go, and believe in that, and you go, and then you get slowly disillusioned, and ah, so nothing is important, really. Um, any idea is just idea. It's temporarily as everything else. Yeah. Now, how do I keep myself going? And speaking of service, right? It's, again, so subjective. Um, what is truly good and what is not? Let, uh, here is the situation. You see, you see a <laughs> car accident. 60-years-old lady yeah. uh, had kids had, uh, let's say, six, six people. Car had ex accident. She wasn't careful. Uh, everybody were killed. She survived. Very in bad state. And here I am, of course, good citizen, 911. <laughs> but here's the back story. She had killed her entire family by her own fault. He maybe has, she maybe has 10 years more left to live. Does she want to live? Does she want to live with this guilt and pain that yeah. she destroyed her family by her own mistake? Yeah. So my call of 911, how good is that? 
Yeah. You know, this primitive store, situation, but this, where is the compass? Where is the what? The compass. The direction, the guidance. How to, how to keep the purpose, understanding that attachment to any idea is false. It's false by default. Hmm. Okay, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite sure that I understood the question. <laughs> Let's say that one can't rely dogmatically on one's opinions, but one has to make assessments to the best of one's knowledge to try to find what is the right action within a particular situation. But one can't always insist that what I believe to be the right action will always work out that way. Do you know the story of Chuang Tzu? It's a story from the Chinese Taoist philosopher Chuang Tzu about what is good, what is bad. Let's see if I could think of it. Okay, there was a farmer. I haven't really looked at the story in a long, long time. <laughs> if I try to relate it now, I might mix it up. So let me just stop with what I said, that according to the situation, one makes, tries to make the best assessment of what is right, what is wrong under these conditions, but one doesn't cling dogmatically to one's judgment and thinks, because I've decided in this way, this has to be the right way. There might be other factors beyond one's range of knowledge that would throw a different spotlight on the situation, but as long as you're... We're always forming judgments under limitations, we don't always have a fully comprehensive view of all the relevant factors. And so what we'd have to do is make provisional judgments as to what is right, what is wrong, leaving ourselves open to the possibility that if we had other facts at our disposal, we would see our judgments in another light. And if this does actually happen, then we have to be have the flex <coughs> flexibility of mind to change our judgment, to change our opinion. That's what I'll say. Okay, thank you all for your attention. And may I just do the sharing of the merits? Do, do, do. Okay, because in our tradition, when we speak on Dhamma, listen to the Dhamma, then we acquire a certain kind of wholesome karma merit. And so we share these merits with the deities that protect the Dhamma, with the fierce spirits that sometimes can be harmful, but if we share the merit, then they rejoice in the merits and will help protect us. And then we share the merits with all beings. So I'll recite some verses in the Pali language. And you just, as you sit, generate thoughts of loving kindness towards all beings in your heart, sharing the merit of your dedication to the practice with the deities and with all other beings. Akasatachabhumata Devanaga Mahidika Punyantanganu Moditva 
Shiram Rakanto Sasanam Akasata Chabumata Devanaga Mahidika Panyantanganumoditva Shiram Rakanto Desanam Akasata Chabumata Devanaga Mahidika Panyantanganumoditva Chirang Rakanto Mangparang Etavata Chamhehi Sampadang Punya Sampadang Sabe Deva Anumodantu Saba Sampati Siddhya Etavata Chamhehi Sampadang punya sampadang, sabe butanu modantu, sabha sampati siddhya, etavata cha amhehi. Sampadang punya sampadang, sabe satanu modantu, sabha sampati siddhya. Bhavagupadaya avici hetato etantare satakayupapana rupia rupicha asanya sanyino dukha pamuchantu pusantu niputing